Section 7 of The Char Woman's Daughter by James Stevens. Chapters 13 and 14. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read for you by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter 13. After that day, Mary Make-Believe met her new friend frequently. Somehow, wherever she went, he was not far away. He seemed to spring out of space. One moment she was alone, watching the people passing, and the hurrying cars, and the thronged and splendid shop windows. And then a big voice was booming down to her, and a big form was pacing deliberately by her side. Twice he took her into a restaurant and gave her lunch. She had never been in a restaurant before, and it seemed to her like a place in fairyland. The semi-darkness of the retired rooms, faintly colored by tiny electric lights, the beautifully clean tables and the strange foods, the neatly dressed waitresses with quick, deft movements and gravely attentive faces, these things thrilled her. She noticed that the girls in the restaurant, in spite of their gravity and industry, observed both herself and the big man with the minutest inspection, and she felt that they all envied her the attentions of so superb a companion. In the street also she found that many people looked at them, but listening to his constant and easy speech, she could not give these people the attention they deserved. When they did not go to the park, they sought the most reserved streets or walked out to the confines of the town and up by the river Daughter. There were exquisitely beautiful places along the side of the Daughter, shy little harbors and backwaters, and now and then a miniature waterfall or a broad placid reach upon which the sun beats down like silver. Along the river bank the grass grows rank and wildly luxurious, and at this season, warmed by the sun, it was a splendid place to sit. She thought she could sit there forever watching the shining river and listening to the great voice by her side. He told her many things about himself and about his comrades, those equally huge men. She could see them walking with slow vigor through their barrack yard, falling in for exercise or gymnastics or for school. She wondered what they were taught and who had sufficient impertinence to teach giants and where they ever slept for not knowing their lessons. He told her of his daily work the hours when he was on and off duty, the hours when he rose in the morning and when he went to bed. He told her of night duty and drew a picture of the blank deserted streets which thrilled and frightened her, the tense darkness and how through the silence of the sound a footstep was magnified a thousandfold, ringing down the desolate pathways away and away to the smallest shrill distinctness and she saw also the alleys and laneways hooded in blackness and the one or two human fragments who drifted aimlessly and frantic along the lonely streets striving to walk easily for fear of their own thundering footsteps cowering in the vastness of the city dwarfed and shivering beside the gaunt houses the thousands upon thousands of black houses each deadly silent each seeming to wait and listen for the morning and each teeming with men and women who slept in peace because he was walking up and down outside flashing his lantern on shop windows and feeling doors to see if they were by any chance open now and again a step from a great distance would tap tap 
pap a far-off delicacy of sound and either die away down echoing side streets or come clanking on to where he stood growing louder and clearer and more resonant ringing again and again in doubled and trebled echoes while he standing far back in a doorway watched to see who was abroad at the dead of night and then that person went away on his strange errand his footsteps trampling down immense distances till the last echo and the last faint tremble of his feet eddied into the stillness now and again a cat dodged gingerly along a railing or a strayed dog slunk fearfully down the pathway nosing everywhere in and out of the lamplight silent and hungry and desperately eager he told her stories also wonderful tales of great fights and cunning tricks of men and women whose whole lives were tricks of people who did not know how to live except by theft and violence people who were born by stealth who ate by subterfuge drank by dodges got married in attics and slid into death by strange subterranean passages he told her the story of the two hungry men and of the sailor who had been robbed and a funny tale about the barber who had two mothers he also told her the stories of the eight tinkers and of the old women who steal fish at night-time and the story of the man he let off and he told her a terrible story of how he fought five men in a little room and he showed her a great livid scar hidden by his cap and the marks in his neck where he had been stabbed with a jagged bottle and his wrist which an italian madman had thrust through and through with a dagger but though he was always talking he was not always talking of himself through his conversation there ran a succession of queries tiny slender questions which ran out of his stories and into her life questions so skilful and natural and spontaneous that only a girl could discover the curiosity which prompted them he wanted her name her address her mother's name her father's name had she other relatives did she go to work yet what was her religion was it a long time since she left school and what was her mother's business to all of these mary make-believe answered with glad candor she saw each question coming and the personal curiosity lying behind it she divined and was glad of she would have loved to ask him personal and intimate questions about his parents his brothers and sisters and what he said when he said his prayers and had he walked with other girls and if so what had he said to them and what did he really and truly think of her her curiosity on all these points was abundant and eager but she did not dare to even hint a question one of the queries often touched upon by him she eluded she shrank from it with something like terror it was what was her mother's business she could not bear to say that her mother was a charwoman it did not seem fitting she suddenly hated and was ashamed of this occupation it took on an aspect of incredible baseness it seemed to be the meanest employment where any one could be engaged and so when the question conveyed in a variety of ways had to be answered it was answered with reservations mary make-believe told him a lie she said her mother was a dressmaker chapter fourteen one night when mrs make-believe came home she was very low-spirited indeed she complained once more of a headache and of a languor which she could not account for she said it gave her all the trouble in the world to lift a bucket 
It was not exactly that she could not lift a bucket, but that she could scarcely close her mind down to the fact that the bucket had to be lifted. Some spring of willingness seemed to be temporarily absent. To close her two hands on a floor cloth and twist it into a spiral in order to wring it thoroughly was a thing which she found herself imagining she could do if she liked, but had not the least wish to do. These duties, even when she was engaged in them, had a curious quality of remoteness. The bucket into which her hand had been plunged a moment before seemed somehow incredibly distant. To lift the soap lying beside the bucket, one would require an arm of more than human reach, and having washed or rather dabbed at a square of flooring, it was a matter of grave concern how to reach the unwashed part just beyond, without moving herself. This languor alarmed her. The pain in her head, while it was severe, did not really matter. Everyone has pains and aches, sores and sprains, but this unknown weariness and disinclination for the very slightest exertion gave her a fright. Mary tempted her to come out and watch the people going into the Gaiety Theatre. She said a certain actor was playing, whom all the women of Dublin make pilgrimages, even from distant places, to look at and by going at once they might be in time to see him arriving in a motor-car at the stage door, when they could have a good look at him getting out of the car and going into the theatre. At these tidings Mrs. Make-Believe roused for a moment from her strange apathy. Since tea-time she had sat, not as usual, upright and gesticulating, but humped up and flaccid, staring at a blob of condensed milk on the outside of the tin. She said she thought she would go out and see the great actor, although what all the women saw in him to go mad about she did not know, but in another moment she settled back to her humped-up position and restored her gaze to the condensed milk tin. With a little trouble, Mary got her to bed, where, after being hugged for one moment, she went swiftly and soundly to sleep. Mary was troubled because of her mother's illness, but as it was always difficult to believe in the serious illness of another person until death has demonstrated its gravity, she soon dismissed the matter from her mind. This was the more easily done because her mind was teeming with impressions and pictures and scraps of dialogue. As her mother was sleeping peacefully, Mary put on her hat and went out. She wanted, in her state of mind, to walk in the solitude which can only be found in crowded places, and also she wanted some kind of distraction. Her days had lately been so filled with adventure that the placid immobility of the top back room was not only irksome but maddening, and her mother's hasty and troubled breathing came between her and her thoughts. The poor furniture of the room was hideous to her eyes. The uncarpeted floor and bleak, stained walls dulled her. She went out, and in a few moments was part of the crowd, which passes and repasses nightly from the rotunda, up the broad pathways of Sackville Street, across O'Connell Bridge, up Westmoreland Street, past Trinity College, and on through the brilliant lights of Grafton Street to the Fusiliers Arch at the entrance to St. Stephen's Green Park. Here, from half-past seven o'clock in the evening, youthful Dublin marches in joyous procession. Sometimes bevies of young girls dance by, each a giggle incarnate. A little distance behind these, a troop of young men follows stealthily and critically. They will be acquainted and more or less happily paired before the bridge is reached. 
but generally the movement is in couples appointments dating from the previous night have filled the streets with happy and careless boys and girls they are not exactly courting they are enjoying the excitement of fresh acquaintance old conversation is here poured into new bottles old jokes have the freshness of infancy everyone is animated and polite to no one but his partner the people they meet and pass and those who overtake and pass them are all subjects for their wit and scorn while they in turn furnish a moment's amusement and conversation to each succeeding couple constantly there are stoppages when very high-bred introductions result in a redistribution of the youngsters as they move apart the words tomorrow night or thursday or friday are called laughingly back showing that the late partner is not to be lost sight of utterly and then the procession begins anew among these folk mary make-believe passed rapidly she knew that if she walked slowly some partially elaborate gentleman would ask suddenly what she had been doing with herself since last thursday and would introduce her as kate ellen to six precisely similar young gentlemen who smiled blandly in a semicircle six feet distant this had happened to her once before and as she fled the six young gentlemen had roared bow wow wow after her while the seventh mewed earnestly and with noise she stood for a time watching the people thronging into the gaiety theatre some came in motor-cars others in carriages many hearse-like cabs deposited weighty and respectable solemnities under the glass-roofed vestibule swift outside cars buzzed on rubber tires with gentlemen clad in evening dress and ladies whose silken wraps blew gently from their shoulders and in addition a constant pedestrian stream surged along the pathway from the shelter of an opposite doorway mary watched these gaily animated people she envied them all innocently enough and wondered would the big policeman ever ask her to go to the theatre with him and if he did would her mother let her go she thought her mother would refuse but was dimly certain that in some way she would manage to get out if such a delightful invitation were given her she was dreaming of the alterations she would make in her best frock in anticipation of such a treat when half-consciously she saw a big figure appear round the corner of grafton street and walk towards the theatre it was he and her heart jumped with delight she prayed that he would not see her and then she prayed that he would and then with a sudden sickening coldness she saw that he was not alone a young plump rosy-cheeked girl was at his side as they came nearer the girl put her arm into his and said something he bent down to her and replied and she flashed a laugh up at him there was a swift interchange of sentences and they both laughed together and then they disappeared into the half-crown door mary shrank back into the shadows of the doorway she had a strange notion that everybody was trying to look at her and that they were all laughing maliciously after a few moments she stepped out on the path and walked homewards quickly she did not hear the noises of the streets nor see the promenading crowds her face was bent down as she walked and beneath the big brim of her straw hat her eyes were blinded with the bitterest tears she had ever shed End of section 7